Gospel of Luke, <coughs> Brian kind of went through the whole theme of kingdom from the Gospel of Luke last Sunday evening. Uh, I'm not going to take such a broad sweep, but we're going to look at the idea of teaching and of Jesus the teacher. And we'll do it looking at this passage that we read, but bearing in mind the rest of the, the Gospels as well. Now, here's the problem. Most of us don't have too positive a view of teaching, okay? It's something that you endure. I I'm, don't really want to pick on the students, but um, some of you are my Facebook friends, and I stalk you, and you don't, uh, and if you don't understand what that term means, by the way, it's not what you think if you're not a Facebook fanatic. And uh, I rarely hear someone saying, hooray, I'm going to a lecture. I'm waiting, dying to be taught. Teaching is something that you endure because you have to go through with it. Um, I think that that's an attitude that exists in our culture, a kind of anti, why do I need to be taught? And even in schools, I think one of the dangers that is occurring is that for children, unless it's entertaining, then they're not going to do it. And sometimes it's really difficult to make something entertaining. You know, um, there's a fantastic picture of this in Sweden. I think if you YouTube this, you'll see it. There was a stairway in the underground in Stockholm that they filmed. They did an experiment. They filmed people going up, and there's two escalators going up, and there's one stair that you, you step up now. Virtually nobody goes up the steps, except the people in Lycra. But the rest, all are just, they get on the escalator and they just, the way, and they were, this is the Swedish Health Council thinking, how do we get people to go up steps? And so they took over the station for one night and closed it down. And then what they did was, and you see this is absolutely amazing, they covered the whole stairway with carpet like a piano key. And underneath each key, they put a sound machine so that when you stepped on it, it sounded like a piano. And then they filmed for the next day people going, and it was so, so interesting because so many people wanted to go and walk on the piano keys. They walked up, I mean, 10 times as many people walked up the stairs. Why? Because it was fun. And there's a whole discussion about this, that if you teach people things and you make it fun, then they're much more likely to learn. Now, I actually think there's a, there's a great deal of insight in that but I also think we're in enormous danger sometimes of saying, oh, it's really boring, and so I can't be bothered. And that happens when we come to church as well, because the whole thing is people say, well, I've got to really, really feel good. I want to get a real buzz out of this. So obviously, what happens is the worship becomes what people call the worship, the praise and so on. That becomes the number one priority in things. And sometimes you will watch, sometimes you'll go to a church, and sometimes you'll watch on television a service, and in an older style, it's all bells and smells, but in, in, a, in a newer style, it's, it's, it's all emotion and it's all <coughs> um, music and so on. And the teaching bit, when the guy has to stand up and teach, is really difficult. And so in order to teach properly, he has to tell lots of jokes. He has to be like a stand-up comedian and so on. Some of you like listening to Mark Driscoll. I like listening to Mark Driscoll, usually. And um, 
But Mark Driscoll's really interesting. As a communicator, he studied 50 stand-up comedians before he did his teaching. A, he, he deliberately did that, and he's actually a very effective and very, very good communicator, and he can speak for an hour and 20 minutes, and people who normally don't listen to anything will listen to him. I think that um, those of us who, who do teach, we've got to be very careful how we do it, but there is a difficulty for those, for all of us who are taught that we, we have this kind of reluctance in terms of teaching. We expect things to happen to us. We don't really just want to learn things. And if we do learn things, we want them to be really instant, really quick, and to work immediately. But here's the problem when we come to Jesus as the teacher. <clears throat> he went up a mountain to pray, and he called his disciples to him. They are called disciples because disciples were a distinct community, and they were learners. They were there to learn. A disciple was somebody who went around and listened and tried to understand and tried to learn. That's what the, the early church was based upon, and that's always been the case within the Christian church. In other words, if you're not a Christian with a big L plate up in front of you saying, I'm here to learn then you're going to really make shipwreck of your faith. Let me say two things about this, this learning community, by the way, because that's what the church is. <coughs> the learning community is always going to be a mixed community. There, are, there will always be those who are ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. I remember having mixed motives for going to church sometimes, and I remember one time sitting counting the panes in the window, which shows you that I wasn't really paying all that much attention. And then the thought struck me that this was the Word of God, and that God was speaking, and I should listen to what God had to say. I wasn't the person to sit in judgment. I was the person to sit and to say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm afraid it is a sad thing that always in the church, there will be people who don't hear, who don't listen, who don't learn. There are older people who think, I've heard it all before and I know it all, and who listen only to judge. There are other people, maybe newer Christians, younger Christians sometimes, who have the kind of attitude, I can learn it for myself. Why do I need anyone to teach me? And then there can be people who just say, I don't want to learn anything, really. I just want to experience it. I just want to, to get on with being practical and doing things. And sadly, in the Christian church, we've divided things. So there are people who are kind of really into theology, and then there are people who are really into Bible teaching or <coughs> Bible learning in small groups. Then there are other people who are into evangelism, and other people who are into mercy ministries, and other people who are into praise. But if we are Christians, we are learners. We are coming to learn about Jesus. I have the great privilege of being able to study God's Word uh, as on a professional basis, if you like, for my job. I have, this year, it will be 25 years of doing that as a minister. And for some of you, you are totally shocked because you think I must have been ordained when I was five. But uh, it was, thanks, Chris. 
Um, I, I, I can honestly say this. I fully identify with Martin Luther saying that if you're bored of the Word of God, you're bored of life. I don't find the Bible boring at all, and I keep learning and finding new things in the Bible. And not only that, I don't mean new things in the sense of, well, that's an interesting point that you could answer on some kind of Bible trivia quiz. I mean, stuff that changes your life. As a Christian, you're constantly being molded and shaped and changed. The learning community of Jesus will always be a distinct community, although there will be those within it who won't learn and who end up leaving. There will be those within it who are shaped much more by the world, yet we will always be a distinct community because what we learn is different from what our elders have. That's on that psalm it said, I've got more wisdom than my elders. The elders in that community were the people who ran the society. Don't understand it as being like the elders in the church. <clears throat> now, the equivalent today is you're basically saying, I've got more wisdom than my lecturers. Probably best not to tell them that ahead of your exam paper. Or I've got more wisdom than the politicians. Or I've got more wisdom than the media. It's not a boast about your intelligence or your academic ability or your understanding. What it is a boast about is a boast about the Word of God. So, Jesus teaches his disciples, and if you say you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to come to Jesus and say, Lord, please teach me. Please teach us. Second thing about Jesus' teaching is that it is radical. <clears throat> it does go back to the roots. And in the passage we read, I just want to, uh, we won't be able to go into any detail with it, but I just want to identify four things that are there. In verse 20 to verse 26 of chapter 6, it's the Luke's summary of the Beatitudes and uh, the woes that follow us as well. And what it's there, it's a reversal of values. The values that the world have says, if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're sad, if you're hated and excluded and rejected, then you're cursed. But if you are wealthy, if you are well-fed, if you're laughing, if everybody speaks well of you, you're of good reputation, then you're blessed. Now, Jesus comes along, and in His teaching, He, he doesn't even just go outside the box. He blows the box apart, and He says something that is so countercultural and counterintuitive in us that you really have to stop and think about it. Some of you have read these words over and over and over again, and you've read them as religious words coming from Jesus out of the Bible. But can you imagine how the disciples first heard this? He calls them. He, he stays up all night. He prays. He calls these twelve. There are others who are there, but it's really these people he's speaking to. And he says to them, this is your ordination sermon, and it's not how great you are and how wonderful and how blessed you're all going to be and how you're all going to sit and reign in the kingdom. It's not that. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you hungry now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. There's a reversal of values in the teaching of Jesus. 
Every now and then you get a, a, a teacher in a church who says, I want to be really radical. I'm going to teach this. And, I'm going to... and then they go away from the Word of God. Every time you go away from the Word of God, you do not become more radical. You become more conservative in a bad way. If you want to be really radical, just teach the Bible and apply the Bible and think the Bible. It is constantly, constantly, constantly provoking and challenging. And if you're the kind of Christian who comes in and who hears a sermon or who reads the Bible or who goes to a Bible study, <coughs> you go to your fellowship group and you just sit there and rather smugly fold your arms and say, I know this. I, ha- I-, I have to say, I wonder what kind of Christian you really are. It really is just wonderful when you see how Jesus turns everything upside down. From verse 27 to verse 38, Jesus' teaching is what we'll call the law of love. I tell you, hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who will treat you. You know, even when I, I read that earlier, the thing that struck me there was give to those who ask you, and if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what reward do you get? How many of us lend to people and then say, well, I'm lending it to them, but I don't really expect to get it back? Okay, might be that your kid brother is, has got a track record for that kind of thing, or your best friend or something. But in general, the reason we call it lending is because we're getting it back. And Jesus says to his disciples, be prepared to lend to somebody who's not going to give it back to you. The right attitude to your enemies is to love your enemies, not to hate them, not to despise them. In fact, you have to pray for them. And here's a simple challenge in terms of Jesus' teaching. In this past week, how many of your enemies did you pray for? And please don't tell me I don't have any enemies. Okay, how many of the people who you don't like very much then did you pray for? And how many people who you don't like very much did you complain about but didn't pray for? Now, I'll be completely honest. Until I started looking through this again and just being completely challenged by it, my answer to to that would have been precisely zero. None. And yet I claim to be a Christian. Jesus says, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who ill-treat you. And when someone curses you, then you bless them. Christopher Hitchens calls this teaching the most obnoxious and evil teaching in the world. Because it's impossible for anyone to do this. I think it's the salvation of the world. Because Jesus is telling us to do something that he has done and that he would enable us to do. Just imagine how your work tomorrow would be transformed if when that really annoying work colleague who irritates you because of all the things that they do and they say and the, the things, the, the snide remarks they make about you and so on, if instead of secretly cursing them and wishing that they were sacked or away from the place, if instead you prayed for God's blessing to be upon them, <clears throat> because your whole attitude would change. Chapter 6, verse 39 to verse uh, 45 parable of the blind man leading the blind man. It's, it's, the whole idea there is 
Jesus' teaching is about the integrity of, of the person who's doing teaching. There is a message, but the message has to come with integrity. We love watching the West Wing, and we're going through the series again, and the stage we're at just now, there's a whole question of the deputy president of the United States having had an affair, and the whole argument comes up, well, does that matter in terms of his public policy? What someone does in their private life, does it matter? The answer is actually, yes, it does, because if you will do that in something that is so important to you, then what is to say that you will be a man or woman of integrity in your public life? What you are in private affects what you are in public. So, the person and the message is really important. Jesus is saying that. It's not just that the teaching is vital, but the way that teaching comes. And then from verse 46 to 49, what Jesus says about his teaching is that it is intensely practical. In other words, it has to be obeyed, not to be left aside. It's not a theory. It's not just something to be argued about. It's not just something to have debates about. At some point, you say yes or you say no to what Jesus asks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? What are you you doing, is what he asks. So, Jesus teaches in those ways. He teaches a reversal of values. He teaches the law of love. He teaches the integrity of the person bringing the message, and He teaches that it's practical, that His Word is to be obeyed. Let me just say some other things about the way that Jesus taught overall, and then um, try and ask how this applies and works with us. Jesus' teaching is personal. It's not just vaguely general. It's very, very personal. And when we come and hear God's Word in church, you might want Jesus to speak to you. I know people, and maybe some of you are here, what you're thinking is, I would believe in Jesus if I had this experience, if God personally spoke to me. Sure, I know He speaks in the Bible. I know that there are other people who've got these amazing stories. But what about me? I've never had that. I've never had the angels speak. I've never had the flashing lights. I've never had the huge well up of emotion inside me. How does God speak to us personally? Well, I think Jesus' teaching is personal. It's always personal. When you're hearing God's Word tonight, it's a personal word that is directed to you because God is so amazing that He's able to so inspire His Word that it's, it's for all ages, it's able to be applied to every single individual human being who hears it. Jesus' teaching is also always practical. Again, people make this distinction between being practical and um, hearing teaching, but the teaching is always practical. It changes you, it changes your attitude, and therefore changes your actions. Just take that one example we had there. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. That's really, really practical. Because it's practical tomorrow when somebody attacks you or slags you off that you don't respond in kind. That you turn the other cheek. That's really hard, really counterintuitive, but it's really, really 
practical. I think Jesus' teaching is also pictorial, and what I mean by that is it's not just a whole series of abstract concepts. He, he constantly teaches in pictures and uses illustration and, and demonstrates things. Even that passage that we read, as you, <coughs> as you go through that, you'll see the, the practical examples that he gives, the story that he tells of the, the man building the house, the illustration of the good tree and bad fruit and the bad tree bearing good fruit. Um, I think also in that there's also a, a fair bit of humor. Uh, people have this kind of idea that we shouldn't use humor. No, this is the Word of God. Don't be humorous. Well, what do you think this is? Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? What do you think Jesus is saying? He's saying, he's, he's painting this image that's actually quite funny. Come on, follow me. And then they fall in a pit. I mean, it's real. It's slapstick. In the same way, the speck, the, the, the beam out of the eye, my um, wonderful wife uh, used to have uh, this sign which I thought was hilarious and very powerful when you might be criticizing or you might be saying something. She would just go, <laughs> you pull the beam out of your eye. Jesus is saying, well, look, you've got a wee speck in your eye, or you've got a wee, you see a wee speck in your brother's eye, and you're going, ha, ah, look, 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 look at you. And there's a plank in yours. Get the plank out of your eye. He's using humor. Certainly irony involved in there as well. He's, he's just getting across the point in a very colorful way. And again, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I think also Jesus' teaching is very, very prayerful. That's why um, in verse 12, he goes up the mountainside to pray, and then he comes down after choosing the 12, praying about that, and praying about what he is, is, is going to teach them. It originates in prayer, and it continues in prayer, and it's followed up in prayer. Now, that's a brief overview of how Jesus taught, and I think how Jesus continues to teach. But the reason he chose 12 apostles was because Jesus was going to go away, and he was going to leave his church. And what was he going to leave his church to do? The Great Commission. They were to go and tell. They were to go and show. They were to go and tell. They were to proclaim who Jesus is. They are to tell the gospel. And that's us. That's what we are supposed to do. So we are supposed to teach. In fact, we're in this situation where we are disciples, but we are also disciple makers. Go and make disciples of all nations. Again, that's interesting because Jesus doesn't say, go and make converts. We are to go and make disciples. So what does that mean for us? And I want to try and make this very, very practical for us here in the church. Uh, I've got several suggestions, and you may have some others as well. We ourselves have to be disciples. You've got to have, if, as a Christian, you've got to have the attitude, I, I want to learn. Now, that, that will show itself in different ways. For example, it means that you will read the Bible properly, that you will not come to the Bible as a magic book with a series of blessed thoughts that are going to help you through the day. You will actually read the Bible for yourself, and you will ask Jesus to teach you the Bible yourself. And I don't care who you are, but it, anyone who can read, that's capable of. And if you can't read, get someone to read to you. You can do that. 
You can share with other people in doing that. What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? How, do, how does this work? And so on. But you can read the Bible for yourself. We have, have to be learners. But also, we can hear the Bible being taught. And that is one of the main reasons that we gather together on a Sunday. Uh, we don't actually come to worship because, biblically speaking, and certainly in the New Testament, this is not the temple, we go to worship. Everything we do really should be worship of God. What we do when we're gathering together here is we're collectively praising God as we should, and we're praying to Him as we should, and we're also being, we're listening to Him, we're being taught by Him as we should. And I know that there are many of you who will say, yeah, yeah, that can happen all the time. I'm being taught by God all the time. You may be. You may be a very specially holy person, but I suspect you're not. I suspect that what happens is everything comes in and God gets crowded out. In fact, think about that in terms of your life. If you're a disciple practically, what does it mean? You can barely give God an hour during a whole week. 144 hours and one hour, you think you're doing good, big brownie points, and you're getting there. We, we spend so much time studying other things, we have very little time to study the Bible. We say, oh, well, we employ people to do that for us, and then they'll come and tell us and give us a wee pep talk, and then we go on and carry on. No, no, we are disciples. And I think that why we have, for example, two services in the church here is not so that we can be kind of the really, really, you know, hardcore Christians can come to church twice. That's not the reason. The reason is so that we get more opportunity to be together and also to be taught God's Word. Sure, you can listen to CDs, you can listen to the internet, you can have all those different kinds of things, but being collectively together, being deliberately set apart to learn God's Word. That's very, very, very important, and I don't want us to lose that. We have to be disciples in that way, but we also have to disciple. We have to pass on what we hear, and I want to suggest um, how we, we do all that in, in um, the fellowship here. Just list some of these, I think, because I don't have time to go into them. One way is what I call prophetic preaching. I do believe in prophecy. I believe God brings his word to us, and I believe he brings it in particular situations. But that normally, usually happens through the proclamation of his word. When we're teaching the Bible, it's not a lecture. And if, if you ever hear anyone stand up and teach the Bible as a lecture, then, especially if it's me, please tell me, because that's wrong. This is the word of God to us today. That's one way of hearing God's Word. Another is public proclamation, not just like here, but when we go out, when you manage to get on the radio or when you get into the public square, publicly proclaiming the Word of God. And now, in our culture, I'm not sure very, really too much how we do that. I think that perhaps leaflets, perhaps posters, uh, I know a couple of churches that went down into the city center and just held up um, big signs with 
Bible references on them without actually saying what the references were. And it just people, they were huge, and people came up and said, what's that about? That was actually quite clever. And that's kind of public proclamation. Private exhortation. What I mean by that is if the only time you talk about God is when you're in a Christian setting like a Bible study or a church, but you never talk about God in your flat or in your home or in a coffee shop or in your work when there, you know, there's an opportunity. Isn't there something slightly wrong with that? Some of the best teaching you will ever, ever get, in fact, I, I would argue generally the best teaching is one-to-one. In Malachi, it talks about those who loved the Lord talked often with one another. And I would suspect our Christianity is pretty weak when we find it difficult to naturally talk about the Lord Jesus. That's where mentoring comes in. I know it's cliched language, and some of you will not be into mentoring, but you actually really are because you do it anyway. Mentoring just simply means this, that you are a disciple being discipled by somebody else, and you in turn disciple someone else. What does the Bible say? Older women teach the younger women. That's what's to happen. We are to train and teach one another. You will learn so much more from having a more experienced Christian be your mentor. And you may say, well, I need that, but I could never ever be a mentor for somebody else. Yes, you could. Yes, you can. That's how you learn. I meet with several people fairly regularly, and of course, you'd say that's my job, and so it is. So, I have an advantage in that way. And I wouldn't expect you to meet with as many. But I'll tell you this, for every single one of them, I learn from them. One person who's just fairly recently become a Christian, I love meeting with him because I'm learning all the time about God from him. That's how God has worked in his life, how he's coming with a different and a fresh perspective to the Bible. And I really would encourage you to be involved in mentoring in some way or other. It's desperate when a woman says, in the church, I've nobody to talk to. Or a young guy comes up and says, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm out of here. Why? Because for two years, he's been thinking, questioning, asking, and he's had nobody to go to and to share with. It's a real responsibility to pray for people and not to interfere in people's lives, but just to, to teach, to mutually teach one another. Let me give you just one more example. Um, we have a small number of teenagers, and I mean like, like, like really we teenagers, not 17, 18-year-olds uh, in the congregation. Do you know what an enormous benefit it is for these very young Christians to have older teenagers, 19, 20-year-olds, who take time to be with them, who are willing to share It is far more important than any youth program that you will ever, ever have. We need that. Discipleship. Group studies. It's really good to do group studies. It's really good to be part of the fellowship groups or or any other kind of group study. It's good to discuss things. It's good to have questions and answers. It's, It's good, I think, to have 
adult, the equivalent of adult Sunday school, and maybe we need to have that a wee bit more. It's good to take our faith seriously. I was speaking with Chris about um, people who become new Christians. What do we do? You say, okay, here you are, you become a Christian. Now on you go, as though we've wound them up like a clockwork soldier, and off they, they go. No, they need care, and they need to learn. And they need, in order to learn, you need people to teach you. It won't come through a program, and to be honest, it doesn't ultimately come through preaching on Sunday services. This is not enough. This is not enough. It really isn't. What should be happening here is I hope that you are provoked to think and to, to, to question and to challenge. You're stimulated, and you, you want to learn more yourself, and you want to, to share, and you want to, to pass that on to other people. I think it's a great thing sometimes on a, a Monday morning or on a Sunday evening when I open up my email and some of you have written and said, well, what about this? Or I didn't agree with this. Or what about that? Or can I meet with you and talk about this? And it's absolutely fantastic. But all of us need to be, be sharing in communicating the gospel. I, I could name right now a dozen people who are curious about Christianity probably, almost certainly, wouldn't come to a service because of the implied commitment it involves, and they're not ready for that, but who would be willing to meet with an individual Christian who would care for them and just take time to teach and to be with them. And I think that is what Jesus did. He calls us to be His disciples but He also calls us to be disciple-makers. And every single one of us, not, we're, you're not like two-tier Christians. All of us are disciples. We're continually learning, continually learning. But we're also disciple-makers because Christ is continually using us to teach others. May God grant that that would be the case. Let me pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are the great teacher. Thank you that you came to communicate your word to us, and we pray that you would help us to understand it, that we'd be able to read it. We thank you that uh, in this year of the anniversary of the King James Bible, that we have the Bible in our own language, that we can read it for ourselves. We pray for those who are involved in translating the Bible into languages where it is not yet complete. We thank you that we have teachers to teach us your word. We thank you that we have older women and older men who can teach. We thank you, O Lord, that we have uh, younger people who also can teach. We thank you that every day we are presented with opportunities to think and to reflect and to share what your word says and to apply it in our context and in our situation. Lord, help us to provoke one another and to encourage one another. And give us the right attitude when we gather on your day, that we would do so because we want to learn, that we would come humbly, not arrogantly, that we would have open hearts and open minds. And Lord, I just pray that each one of us here would honestly pray throughout this week, 
every day. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. For we ask it in your name.